Hello, my name is Megan Holt and welcome to the 14th episode of the ARC Audio Book Club. This month we'll be discussing Nothing Holds Back the Night by Delphine de Vigan. The book is a non-traditional novel-slash-memoir of the life of the author's late mother referred to throughout as Lucille Croyer, though this is a pseudonym. The book is in three parts, with the first addressing Lucille's childhood, the second the author's childhood and Lucille's emotional decline, and the third Lucille's struggles in later life to regain control until her eventual suicide, which is also where the book begins. Folded into this are reflections from Divagan's narrator on the technical, formal, familial and emotional problems that she faced in writing the book. And joining me to discuss the book are Alexander Bookswainty. Hello. Sarah Armini. Hi. And Giovanna Alessandro, of course. Hello. So, uh, the first thing I'd like to get out of the way, um, considering we've talked before this particular moment, did anyone like the book? Alex has said great things about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I guess I guess I'll start uh, and and say no. I I did not like this book, and actually, after about thirty pages, I was prepared to throw it across the room and actually ditch this podcast. But um, I'm here anyway, and that is out of uh, admiration for the the podcast team. Thank, um, you. Thank you. Thank you. But I think I think the main reason I did not like this book was the the constant interjections of h- how she wrote the book. I really did not like this meta level, and I really did not find it at all necessary. I think that's that's the main problem okay. for me. Well, well, we'll probably talk a little bit more about that later on, um, but it's good to know that there's a strength of feeling, but also a dedication to what this podcast stands for, which is rigorous literary criticism at all times. Anyone else have a strong opinion about this uh, this book, Gio. Well, I think Alex might be a bit generous, only saying that that was the part that didn't work for him because to me, nothing really worked. And there was no factors that made me read on, except that I knew I had to. Um, <laughs> I think the book was, uh, well, the language is hollow. It's just filled with cliches. The meta section where she uh, reflects on her work is just really uninteresting. And the whole story is just really, I think, poorly. And I, it's an, it could be a great story because there is really nothing boring about the story, but it's told in such an uninteresting and self-enamored uh, way. Sarah, what did you think about this uh, increasingly evident train wreck? <laughs> I loved that this book made me love other books that I haven't liked because this book was so horrendous. Please name names. Taolin. Yeah? Yeah. My first podcast here. Yeah, yeah. I would love <laughs> first to book you ever first, read. First book I ever read. <laughs> I would love to reread uh, Richard Yates after this book. Just even though I, I wasn't really a fan of Tolin, because this just was horrible. I can't think of anything good to say about it, <laughs> other than that fact that it made me um, appreciate other books. Yeah, because what what I was struck with when I was reading it was that this was a very dull way of addressing the subject in general, um, and also kind of it. It seemed insufficient to address the, the the specific subject of this woman's life as well. It seemed like it wasn't quite getting at it. And I was reminded last year when it came to like um, re- reading uh, a book about, say, the complexities and uh, compromises and, sh- and struggles of women's lives. When I read uh, Lena Wolf's book, um, Brett Easton Ellis and Other Dogs, while it wasn't like a massively impressive book, it was far better executed and far more ambitious. But that was a pure fiction. 
when I looked at uh, something that was kind of like a meta memoir, I was thinking of Dave Eggers' um, A Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius. And that I think is executed excellently, where he's engaging with the questions rather than just making excuses for himself. Because the frustrating thing was, you know, by page 18, she's already saying, um, was it? No, page 28. She's already saying, um, I can't do this. So sorry, but here's more of the book to go. <laughs> yeah, and in reality, it, it, this becomes one long tribute to her family and her mother. And never ever does she take any chances or does anything out of the book because she's so afraid, as she says, of like offending her family and her mother's siblings. And she doesn't offend them. I don't think so. Mm. So why not uh, write this in a long PDF file mm. <laughs> and, and send it to them? Mm. I don't see how why we have to be involved with this project. No, because I mean it does seem it's a book that that tries to you know work um, with the trauma and work with the mother and work with like this horrible uh, traumatic family history. But it it just seems weird that we that it needs an audience and because it does seem very much like it actually should have been emailed to the family rather than then published and then selling a billion copies and sort of monetizing some sort of mm. uh, trauma. It just seems strange. Well, I, I, I don't have that problem with it. I don't think it's a problem that this is a, a best-selling book. Like, I think there's a degree of craft to it which is different from a self-published PDF file. I think that's a really... That's a little well, bit how unfair. many self-published PDF files have you read? Well, I, I've been in, in like, kind of uh, fringe academia for a while, so quite <laughs> a few... <laughs> and the, the proofreading alone puts us in a different league but I do certainly get the thing that it, it's not quite I, I, okay so let me let me rephrase that it, my, the problem I don't have a problem with it being sold uh, in X so many copies it just feels like this is a, this is a sort of a a, an, a diary attempt by a woman who had a, a fucked up mother who had a fucked up um, mother and, and father and, and it just seems that it's should stay within this sort of closed familial space instead of uh, because the, the way she I mean the, the way she sort of attempts to fictionalize this and then then jumps out and then talks about the meta part and then jumps back into the fiction it just seems like it's such a strange gimmick that was more meant for her than it was meant for for the reader. I don't even think it's that experimental, though. No, mm. that's the thing. She seems to think that it's incredibly experimental. And at one point, I can't remember where, but in one of the the reflection sections, she does write that this is this isn't like anything she's mm. ever written before, and this is so new and so dangerous. <laughs> she calls it form. a new genre. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And she doesn't seem to realize that she's only doing it halfway. Like she's. And when it becomes this personal project. Uh then it's hard to criticize it because then it feels like you're criticizing her real pain and the mother's struggle and everything. But the book is still a book yeah, and should be uh, valued and judged by its merit as a book, which I just don't think is that good. I mean, we have every second chapter is her own, the narrator's reflections on writing the book. And she becomes this sort of martyr in the task of writing it. And I'm just... Okay, so it's a hard project, but it's about she's condescending the reader by constantly telling us when this is a metaphor or when this is literally so. <laughs> I don't have a page quote that's, for that. Cause yes, that's... I have all four of them. Okay. And I have exactly what they refer to because this, I almost set the book on fire. <laughs> oh, please, please, please. Um... So on page 58, 158, uh, she is literally and metaphorically tearing out her own hair. On uh, page 183, she talks about literally and metaphorically getting back on one's own feet. 
on page 210, someone is literally and metaphorically, metaphorically an outsider looking in. And on page 266, she's literally and metaphorically unable to lift a finger. Thank so, you. <laughs> so in many of those, like, apart from maybe the last one, I could think of it being both literal and metaphorical. <laughs> on my own. But then also for this section of her reflections on the book, I think she makes some odd choices and I think she makes some really weird choices, uh, not weird, weak choices in terms of being the person to tell the book because she doesn't want to tell us about the seven years where Lucille is narr- uh, married to the narrator's dad and she doesn't want to depict uh, Lucille as a lover so she has not interviewed for the book. Uh, her own dad or any of Lucille's lovers, because as she says, I don't know, I don't want to know what kind of wife or lover Lucille was. But she also wants to find the origin of her mother's disease, which was bipolarity, and she wants to get closer to her mother in writing this book. But then she takes out this very vital part yeah. of the mother's life where she has been in relation to other people, and she doesn't want to know anything about it. Mm. Which but is- maybe the reader wants to know about it. And again, it's this personal project, Mm, right, mm. which is her own project. Mm. But that really doesn't make it a good book. No, exactly. And like that, the fact that she leaves out the her own father is extra weird to me because she hints at um, the possibility that somewhere in the marriage is where Lucille cracked. Because she talks about the before the marriage where everything was okay, it was a bit weird, but she was okay. After the marriage, everything went downhill. And also we find out, uh, I was talking to Macon about this, We, I mean the readers discover uh, through, uh, in one point of the book that it is because of Lucille's sexuality and the fact that she is a very attractive woman that she has to move out of the house of her parents. I mean she probably would have otherwise, right? Yeah. But it's due to that that she wants to get out. And it is through that that she does get out because she is uh, attractive and... Uh, uh, beautiful, she uh, is able to get out of the house. But again, we yeah. hear nothing about that because the narrator is not interested in that. And this, of course, ties into the whole like the the my biggest flaw with the with the book is the way that it um, the way the way that it treats um, the central the central traumatic event that um, well I don't know if it's central. All I know is it's central in the book. It's in the, it's in the yeah. literal mm. center of the book, uh, where uh, apparently in her young adulthood um while the 16 or so no well no this is this when she oh, reveals okay. it but like when she was about yeah she went into in her young adulthood she she writes a, a short story which in which she reveals that she was uh drugged and raped by her father and the way that this is placed in the book is it's kind of a climactic point from which we need to judge everything that came before and everything that comes after and Considering that that didn't happen chronologically, the events and everything else has been found out through research. The way that it's kind of like sucker punt, like suckered along until like, oh, now we see what was going on. Like now we see why it was kind of weird, kind of weird the way that we, she said about how George couldn't take his eyes off her. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, now we know. Like all that kind of foreshadowing is like it treated a very serious thing, which the author admits may have something to do with the mental instability, which also needs to be expressed like through her relationships probably romantically through the rest of her life or some there's some engagement going on there probably in some way um but that's neglected it's not even addressed as a thing that's not possible um yeah it's just used as a trick which is a weird dissonance because i think that's fine use anything you want it's a trick but at the same time when she's saying that Mm. this is like so genuine so honest the pain is real blah 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 and then she Mm. uses this vital part of like yeah everything that happened in just playing a trick on the reader in Mm. a transgressive work that'd be perfect (laughs) 
But I also mm. don't, she doesn't, my problem with the whole book is that she doesn't do anything fully. She she sort of sketches out what she would like to do. You get the, the feeling that she wants to do something with this, but she never quite goes there. So she mentions, she brings up the, um, the fact that uh, her grandfather raped her mother. Um, and then she sort of refuses to, she doesn't really do anything with that. That's where I really get the mm. sense that she's scared of her family because she she makes a big point of saying that, oh, well, actually, Lucille retracted the story but I think after that, everyone yeah. neglected to react on it. But but I think, I mean, there is something somewhere in this book, a, a sort of pseudo attempt to understand or try to uh, create something that, that uh, revolves around how truth works, right? I mean, th- this is a big part of the book. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you, she talks to people and they give three, you get four different stories, you get five, and this is sort of a pseudo intellectual uh, point that the book also tries to make, I think, whilst talking about this trauma. And this sort of dual grasp, of, on the one hand, you have the, the horrible trauma, on the other hand, you have this sort of pseudo intellectual project where you, oh, we talk about like the truth is, is impossible to find. And, but I mean, come on, we learned this in like the, like, Plato knew about this. You know? <laughs> I mean, this just really aggravated, aggravated me. Why do we need this sort of intellectual attempt? But I mean, an, an intellectual attempt to like talk about truth would be interesting if she'd done it well, but yes. she didn't because, I mean, she she constantly picks out her own story and turns it into a nice linear narrative. Like when mm-hmm. uh, uh, when the first brother dies, she, after telling us that he's died, in the reflection says, well, actually, I got a lot of conflicting uh, versions of this event. And I just picked the one that was the closest to what I already knew because mm-hmm. she had to. But I, th- I think it would have been better and more in accordance with the way the book was going if she hadn't, if she just told us, the different stories that she was given. Yeah, which also ties into the the, the the reason why she said she didn't interview her father was because she had already made, he had already made a narrative of Lucille's life. Mm. And it's like, well... But hasn't been everyone that <laughs> you're talking yeah. to in this book. Yeah, but he did it while having had sex with her. And she didn't agree with his narrative, so out it went. Oh, but she didn't find out what it was. Maybe she no, did. No, 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 she sounds very, very bitter about it. Like in the, okay. she, well, I guess reading between the lines... I, Calm yeah, that, it would have been nice to know if they had a, like a an antagonistic relationship. I perhaps. think they did because at one point she also says that she she went to live with him at one point when she was a young teenager and she she learned something about that was much more brutal. But she never talks about it, and so clearly she had a terrible relationship. And with it's it. the same still with the story that she tells her uh, tells us of Lucille. She keeps on saying, "But she did things that were much worse." <laughs> <laughs> so she wants to tell us more with less. But this whole <laughs> book, and that is the thing, because she keeps telling yeah. us, it is so over-explained, the mm. whole thing, and it is so condescending, and at no point can we, the reader, imagine anything, because, oh, well, of course we can, but she keeps on addressing us and telling us, and, yeah. Mm. Yeah, nothing's hinted at. No. And it's as if she imagines a very slow reader who really needs to, like, my hand needs to be taken, and gently uh, move through this novel in bits. Mm. Yeah, I want to just um, move on to a topic now, more, I think, sort of coming out of what we've been discussing so far. Um, I think that the book is quite soft on the, far, on the, on the Lucille's father character. I think <laughs> uh, we've been preparing a, uh, she has prepared a list of, of, his, of allegations that can be made against him. <laughs> oh, wait, no, sorry, it's a quote. <laughs> 
first I want to read a quote, because I said in the beginning of the podcast that the whole uh, language in this book is really hollow and it's filled with cliches, and now I'm going to demonstrate it. Here she describes her own grandfather, George, who is Lucille's dad. But deep down, and this is probably what George was thinking about in the evening, staring, staring vacantly at the strips of parquet, wherever he was, in the arms of women at the center of long tables, surrounded by friends, behind the wheel of the car on country roads, his children crammed in the back, wherever he was. Yes, deep down, he was alone. Deep down. <laughs> and then I'm thinking, well... Yes, and that's probably a good thing. <laughs> because, and here is the list of allegations against George. <laughs> because he is a Nazi, he is a pederast, he is incestuous, he's a rapist, he's unfaithful towards his wife, and he's a hippie hater. <laughs> the worst one. <laughs> but still, George has a way more prominent role in this novel than his wife, uh, Lucille's mother, Leanne. Who is the solid rock that holds this family together? Um, and is the strong woman who, give, woman who gives birth to seven children and makes sure that everything runs smoothly in the mm. house. She is just depicted as this elfish creature with a slim waist who always smiles. That's sort of her role. And oh, she wears funny outfits. Wait, she can also do a split. She can do she a can split. She can also do <laughs> a split. At 17. <laughs> yeah, that's about it for Leanne. But mm. George has a real... He's a character, and he is sort of 3D, and you can imagine this person. Yeah. Um, this strong, like, patriarch of the family. Mm. Mm. He's also a fucking asshole. <laughs> He's terrible. Mm. And the thing about that is she, she lists all those allegations against him, like, during the book, but she seems reluctant to judge him. And then when... Um, Uh, Leanne is confronted, his wife is confronted with the, the fact that he, he might have kind of hit on his granddaughter. Fondled the, <laughs> Fondled the friend, at least. Fondled the friend. <laughs> she, uh, she is quite harshly judged by the author. Yeah, no, I'm thinking at the point where he is, the narrator's sister is like 14 or yeah, 16. That's the one, yeah, and he buys her a swimming suit and he's <laughs> just staring at her saying, there's more work came from. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And then when she men mentions it to the grandmother, she's like, you mustn't say things like that about your grandfather. Yeah, Actually, I think that's the kind of interesting thing about... The, the, there's a, a whole story of Leanne, which is not properly told. We get a little hint of it with her, like, terror at sex and then being awakened through meeting George and then also <coughs> disappearing every day. Yes. Mm. Mm. Yeah, for and, two hours every, mm. every afternoon. Um, but what was I about to say? That was uh, the, yeah. Leanne, too. Leanne, and then she's... Utterly forgiving of the affairs. Exactly. Oh. It also uh, lists uh, George's many affairs and mm. saying mm. that Leanne was totally down with it as long as she didn't think about it. And she just didn't think about it. So she was always fine. Mm. But I mean, you know that your husband has continuous affairs with younger women. Of course you're not fine with that. You can act, but there must be evenings and afternoons where Leanne is falling apart. Exactly. Because mm. her husband is out there with 18-year-old girls. Um, and may may not be like raping the family friends and stuff like that. But and her own just, children. <laughs> and yeah, and her own children. But Leanne is just this happy elfish camper that is down with everything. Yeah, she's mm. too cool to even care about her husband being a. And yeah, she's not a real person. She likes the movies. Yeah. She goes to the movies. She, oh, loves the movies. Loves a nap. <laughs> and that is just a weird thing of the narrator describing her grandmother like that. Mm. It seems like, to me, it seems like she's too close to her family. Like, she still wants their approval, exactly. so she's afraid she's of so, actually... She's knee-deep in that family, and she calls... She, um, yeah, she sort of glorifies the whole family and um, says that there are all these myths about the family and everything. And, um, yeah, and then she says at one point, I'm the product 
of this myth and in the way it falls to me to maintain and perpetuate it so that my family lives on in our rather desperate and absurd fantasy with it. And then I was like, okay, <laughs> fine. This is so like, oh God, mm. self-enamored. Mm. And and also at one point she says, she writes that she's not at all interested or doesn't understand psychogenealogy, but the whole book is sort of like this. It is literally, that's exactly that's, what she's trying to do. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and the thing is that you could just say that this is nothing with the real author to do. This is just really unreliable and not so great narrator and that might make the book more fun to read. But it re I tried that and it really doesn't because she keeps on popping her head out and saying like, mm. uh, this was so hard for me. I was in a lot of pain. This yeah. was so much torment. And sort of like immunizes herself against critique that way. And this or is exactly why... That whole interjection of herself should be cut, or could have been. It could have been a good book if that had been cut out. If we cut that sort of uh, autofiction memoir bullshit and just had it as a novel, because then we could sort of talk about a narrator who was kind of weird, right? Or struggling, yeah. 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 <clears throat> or even if she kept struggling. it in, but like properly acted on all the the things she mentions are problems. So she lists all these problems, and you're like, oh yes, finally good. You see that this isn't working, but then she doesn't do anything about mm. it. So she just whines and makes excuses for herself. <laughs> So, yeah. And that is yeah. exactly what she does. Yeah. She makes excuses for and herself. And also, she, she, never, she never makes an argument about it. No, definitely, yeah. It's never like, it's always like, I am insufficient. There's no counterpoint to that. Yeah. Very strange. Very, <laughs> very, very strange book in that way, I would say. Which is maybe an experimental form. We don't know. <laughs> But we don't know. It's just way ahead of its time. Yeah. I think actually this whole thing speaks to a kind of a larger problem I found, which is that aside from... Lucille, who is, I'd say, presented in detail, but I would say not two and a half dimensions rather than three. <laughs> like, I think there's a, there's that kind of mother distance which is always being kept. I think that's a problem in a, in a lot of her characters, but especially in Lucille, um, she keeps emphasizing how beautiful she was and how pretty she is. And at one point she uh, makes a, a terrible uh, comparison to... Um, how fairy tale princesses are cursed by witches for being too pretty. And that's the sense I get throughout the novel is that she thinks her mother is basically too pretty to be mentally mm. ill. Like she can't understand how this beautiful, seemingly <laughs> wonderful, happy girl can have a mental a, a, illness. A, a, in a life. Yes, in <laughs> another and, dimension. I think that might actually make it interesting because people usually have that, like, no, you're too pretty to be sad. Yeah. Right? You look mm. like everything is in your favor and... Um, so it has the potential to be interesting, but she doesn't do anything about it again. Mm. No, because then she could take up that issue yeah. of how that structure works. Mm. Um, but yeah. but but no. No, she just mentions it in passing and moves mm. on to how difficult it is. And that makes me think that the novel is just not very clever. I don't know. I don't know if I can make that kind of statement from it, because I think that, not to say that I think it's, that I enjoyed it or I found it interesting. I'm not, I'm not going that far. <laughs> but I think, I think it's cleverness just doesn't relate to, say, developing the art form. I think the cleverness relates to how you make a product that is showered in praise. <laughs> <laughs> And um, she's done that. We it's will, only gotten good reviews. We will move on to that in a little bit. Um, I just wanted to uh, go further into this. Like, Did you know anyone else in the book other than Lucille? Because I didn't. There's a list of siblings and a bunch of them die, but I didn't really care at any point. Well, there was Tom because he seemed to be what oh, yeah. made her grandfather such a good person is that he raped a bunch of girls, but... He the redeeming factor... The redeeming mm. factor he, is that he's nice to yeah. his yeah. own kid with Down syndrome. Exactly. Yeah. Until he isn't anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he was nice to a kid. He had no interest in raping. That's, exactly, um, yeah. 
Oh, well, that's all it took. He wasn't attractive. Well done, Tom. Yeah, so I think we can all settle he, that she was not... She was perhaps too kind to her, to her grandfather. No, but the thing is that she wants to take up these issues and she has these meta-reflections which are just never interesting because she could have made these things interesting. And I think she could have made these sections uh, good and interesting, way better than the narrative and the plot. But it just didn't happen. The thing is, like, it's nice to have a... Again, it has all this potential to be interesting. Again, like you say. Um, I mean, it would be weird to read about this one-dimensional, awful Nazi rapist who has no redeeming factors. Like, why hasn't he not been put to jail? So, I mean, it's nice that there are other... <laughs> that he's sometimes a nice grandfather. But, again, she she worries about that niceness thing too much. And, and she keeps on saying that she's so afraid that her siblings will, uh, her mother's siblings will be pissed at her for writing this family history. And at one point, even the one of the one, it must be one of her aunts because I think it's mother's sister who says, "You will end this book on a brighter note, won't you? Because we all have to read it." And then she does, and then you can't even criticize that because it wasn't her idea. But just just to stay with the grandfather uh, George a second, there is also something. I mean, he he trashes all the children, doesn't he, at the table? I mean, like, um, and this sort of aspect just comes at one point in one line, and then you sort of oh, that's why all of the children, because all of the children are fucked up, and then you get that one line of the grandfather being a really mean person sometimes and also a sort of a pseudo-intellectual and a very aggressive person, but then that just sort of, that's, that's it. Yeah, it's no, like, I know, yeah, exactly. But there's something, all the, all the kids are really sad and the, the one kid shot himself at one point and there's something really sick going on in this house at the table, but I have no idea. Yeah, I think the feeling I got was just after that note comes from Lucille where she expresses what happened and it gets kind of, pushed away and then she decides to retract it because there's no reaction it reminds me a lot of the film Festin when they first have the uh, the reading out of the of the accusation against the father and then everyone just kind of looks around like oh oh instead of oh that's a very dark joke oh dear <laughs> and it's the family party can't quite accept it but I'm thinking now our critique of the book we are sort of all on the same page but it's as if we our critique is sort of looping right it's mm. what if we step one uh, take one step back from our critique and critique that because our points of critique revolve around the woman mm. narrating the book, right? Yeah. And how she's doing it. And we are finding all the weaknesses of it. Yeah. But are they necessarily weaknesses? I don't believe they are, no. <laughs> <laughs> what a twist. <laughs> I believe this book has done exactly what it set out to do and probably more so as we can tell by the showering of praise that it's covered in it's as if it's giving its readers what it thinks they want and mm. there are no loose ends right it's mm. all well very well composed mm. um yes but then i mean the book does live up to its own criteria so yeah. we are judging it and criticizing it on different mm. criteria mm. than what the book is yeah has set out to do right yeah but that's because the books... Or maybe we haven't, because there's this narrator who wants to find out all these things, and she actually doesn't, and it's... But but the, the problem with critiquing this book is the, the memoir fiction thing, because we on the one hand, we're looking for faults to do with the story, and there's there's not enough, or there's too much, or there's too, it's too bland, and that's on the memoir side, and then... But 
this is all excusable because it's also fiction. And I think that's why, because what we are criticizing is a journalism, and we wouldn't mm. do that if it didn't no. set out to be this investigative novel. No, we're not just criticizing no. a journalism. Yeah. No, maybe no. not. No. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm literally criticizing everything I can possibly get my hands yeah. on. Like, But it does, It. I mean, it takes the form of journalism, sort mm. of. So, yeah, in that... Like I, th- I think that irritated me quite a lot was that every chapter section ends with a a little sum up of what you just read. Yeah. And while I know that's irritating me, I know that also that's probably also why it's very successful because everyone knows exactly what's going on and that mm. you can easily recommend things you, things you felt you understood, which you definitely would do as you were reading this. You would understand exactly what was being told to you. Several times mm. over. Um, do you have... Uh, Sarah, you've got some... Um, some uh, some reviews. Uh, would you like so to just give a, our listeners and a flavor? I mean, that's a thing that surprised me. Uh, this book has only gotten good reviews. Good reviews mm. everywhere in all the newspapers. It got a prize in Ireland and yeah. uh, and several in France. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What yeah. I don't get is is it because this book has all the right like buzzwords and themes that it has gotten so great? Like, is it mother daughter relationship, mental illness? Suicide, big family, family myths. It's. I think it's a, a mixture of all of it. It's an. It's a very accessible language. Like you don't have to fight mm. to get through this. No, but no one is criticizing. <laughs> eyelids closing. Everyone yeah. is just in all the reviews. They are um, summarizing the story in their reviews, yeah, and, and they're saying just... that it's so beautiful and it's so grand, and, and you can't stop reading. Yeah. And, but no one is um, talking about the composition of the novel, how it's mm. written. But this is because the story within it, the actual tragedy, is like very, very crazy and interesting. I mean, this is this is there is something within this novel that is completely insane that we will gobble up. And because that, Lucille that, is this mystery. Exactly, what and is that, she that will overshadow the composition, this? and that's mm. that's the problem because we're fetishizing this sort of um, this tragedy. We need it. It's like the you know the uh, the corpse on the street you you don't want to look at it but you'll you you go and look at it because you're fucking curious right but, a, which yeah. street are you on <laughs> <laughs> no, okay. he lives on northwest <laughs> <laughs> no but there's a definite element of like torture porn to it that yeah. I think the author's also fallen victim to like she seems very enamored with with the whole like narrative like oh she's had a terrible upbringing and so on has her mother but yet we've we've sort of made it through and look at me mm. I'm writing a book on the other side and there are so many parallels between the daughter and her mother that mm. every time she describes her mother it feels as if she's actually describing herself because later on she will use the same words on herself as yeah. a child as the mother when she yeah. was a child it actually I think speaks also to like how I think the politics this book are pretty fucked up you know this whole thing of like look I'm overcoming this suffering should we try and do something no like <laughs> <laughs> oh he was a Nazi but you know it was it was back in the day I mean it's fine he yeah, did wonderful dinner parties yeah, yeah, yeah. fucking being yeah, a Nazi water, yeah. 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 apart from when his Proust was coming up and then he got, <laughs> then he got owned <laughs> but yeah it does have this whole feeling of yeah he was a Nazi and a rapist and all these things but yeah it was back in the days <laughs> Yeah, everyone was like that. Yeah, <laughs> like it was fine Most back of Germany. Then. <laughs> <laughs> We're in France right now. Yeah, Sarah, so give, give us some, give us some quotes because I think there's, there's some. Uh, so many great reviews. Yeah. Um, well, okay. Here's one, loosely translated. Who's, who's it from? Who's it from? Kressli Daubler. Okay. Which is the Christian newspaper in Denmark. Mm. And, like you can apparently have a Christian newspaper. So, so but bear in mind that this is Protestants reviewing Catholics. Maybe they're trying to build bridges. But I don't think that according to Protestantism, you should be able to have a Christian newspaper. 
but I'm a bad theologist. So <laughs> <laughs> <be> wrong. <laughs> okay. The more you know. <laughs> Let's critique one thing at a time. <laughs> An insightful, richly faceted, and very moving insight into a frail woman's fate. And in this review, you can also feel how how like totally hot they are on this poor tortured <laughs> got woman. a massive bone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the corpse on the street there. Yeah, and in New York Times. Although language must inevitably fail to capture her full complexity, Devigan's mysterious mother does flash into life in this novel, which, despite its darkness, is shot through with light. Okay, this is a 330-page book, 340-page book. It could ab- easily about, be 150 yeah, because there's ab- so much space about, on those pages. Okay, but it's about Lucille, the mysterious mother. After 300 pages about a character, how can they remain mysterious? <laughs> no, but she does, because that yeah. is where the because book they, fails. Uh, yeah, because they've neglected yes. to address whole areas of her life. Not just, like, sexual <laughs> relationships, family building, the idea of, like, who you share time with. The most, um... What's the word for that? The most, uh... When someone criticizes a thing in a review. The most, uh... The, the review skeptical. that... Skeptical. Yeah, the most skeptical review is from Berlingske. Where it's... It, <laughs> it still gives it four out of six stars. And says the novel isn't without its problem, uh, its problems. There are too many details about street names and uh, car names That's and true. bus routes. See, I found that really interesting yeah. because at least I learned something about <laughs> public transportation of Paris from reading this Some novel. geographical information. <laughs> yeah, it's valid. Uh, they do mention that um, the language isn't always that good and. Uh, needs music in some sentences, but they put that down to the translation. And then they mention that... I don't think it was no, the translation. So either. And then they mention, well, there are quite a lot of cliches as well, but that's as bad oh, as oh, it gets. Yes. <laughs> and still, four stars. Mm. So here in the, in the back, there's a, there's a, a prize from uh, the FNAC and the Grand Prix de Lettres from Elle magazine. And there maybe we're finding the crux of the issue is that perhaps... This was not written for a group of pseudo-intellectuals in, in an independent bookshop in Denmark. No, but I think there is one on the back of the book that is quite true. It's from Eileen Battersby, Irish Times. The only way to read this book is to stop, put it down, <laughs> gasp, absorb the horrors, and then read on. And I think that is like, totally true. Eileen's got it. But then she says it's an um, overpowering work. It was overpowering. But, but, I mean... <laughs> She must, she's diddling herself while she wrote that and read this. There's, there's Eileen hates it. Eileen <laughs> hates the book. She's just afraid to say it. So, we've talked <clears throat> at length about many things. I don't know, is there, does anyone have anything else they'd really like to, uh, to bring up? I yes, and point? I will think about it. No, it will come to me okay. when I'm like about to sleep. I have a good quote. Okay, please. I remembered my mother enjoyed a chicken stew with Claude Monet and Emmanuel Kant one evening in a distant suburb. <laughs> that made that. me lol. Oh yeah, <laughs> like that. that was really yeah. pleasing. <laughs> one of the redeeming facts I found in the book was that you know you do find out that Lacan was a dick. I know that was great. That was good. That's the only reason if I read true, the book. He might have <laughs> hit other women like her. I'm sure he punched everyone that came <laughs> into his yeah. This book yeah. isn't the truth, Macon. Well, well, the, the the truth about Lacan in this book is that he only did give the ten minute, five minute, twenty minute psychoanalysis sex sessions, but. Yeah, but you didn't get past the game of like um, rock, paper, scissors and then like finding the puns that come from that, <laughs> wasn't it? Didn't help. <laughs> okay, so I think we could, uh, we could probably round this. this um, what's happening right now? This is, this is going out of control. 
Oh. I don't know, it's coming off the rails because we're kind of, we just want that time back, I think. <clears throat> I think I think this book has firmly killed the novel. The novel is dead? The novel is now officially dead. I'm, I'm, I'm that's, that's calling it. I'm calling it now because I'm, I'm sick and tired of this, um, this auto-fiction um, genre. And I'll just throw that out there and not argue mm. for it and then I want to hear... <laughs> all the critique well, and hate I get. I think, in I a think second, it's difficult because you read this and you go like, "Well, you're saying you can't do this, but really you're just not willing to do this." Because yeah. look at Karlov Kanelsko; he's destroyed his entire family. Just destroy your family. But I'm not tired of auto fiction. What I'm tired of is the thing that is called auto fiction. Because to me, this is a novel, and let's keep personal life out of it. Because most people write books about things they have experienced and gone through and know about. And I think that's fine, but saying that this is autofiction, I, I don't care if mm. you have lived through this as mm. an author, if you have experienced the divorce or have been sick, uh, gone, gone to this school in mm. real life. It's not interesting because the book lives on its own premises. It's a work. And I mean, the text creates its own meaning. I don't mm. think, how can it be interesting if anyone has lived through this? Yeah. Like autofiction, as if it gives it, it makes it valid in a way. Yeah. Mm. Autofiction, I guess, is a, it makes sense as a label when you are looking at a work that draws attention and makes um, conceptual tools out of the blurriness between reality and creation. Yeah. Mm. And this doesn't do that because it feels like a very journalistic account, as we were saying mm. before, and it also feels like a kind of a best-selling novel. And and while it's doing those two things, it just feels like it's a popular piece of writing. Mm. So it doesn't feel like it's challenging my conceptions of reality and fiction. And that's where I think the strength of autofiction lies. That's where something like Score or Chris Krauss um, has strength. Is that it make? And then also Dave Eggers it had that kind of has that ability to qu- me question my relationship to the text, mm. and this doesn't do that. Mm. It made me question my relationship to the text, but in a in a very different way than your. Like, why isn't it over there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> why is it not in the fireplace? <laughs> okay, so I guess finally I'm going to ask a perfunctory question of: Would you recommend this book, Sarah? No, I would recommend two other good books instead. Please do one in Danish for you non-English speakers. Uh, oh, yeah, there's an English or just one coming. Danish up. speakers. Mm. Um, <laughs> how to be both? How to be both? <laughs> Uh, it's called Gud Taler Ud af Jens Blenstrup. And um, it's it's delightful, it's interesting, and that made me question my relationship to the text. It was really great. I, I'd read it again and again. And the English one is um, Don't Let's Go to the Dogs Tonight by Alexandra Fuller. And her mother, I think, is also bipolar in that book. Um, but she's not afraid of offending her family, so she just lets... Uh, she just goes. Yeah, and it's wonderful. compromise her No, 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 she doesn't creativity. try to... Yeah, she just goes for it. It's wonderful. So, but yeah, definitely not recommend this. Fantastic. If anyone else wants to join in that pattern of, you know, telling people books they can buy from here, we'll do that. (laughs) Um, uh, Alex. Of course I wouldn't recommend this book, but I would recommend this book if you're interested in the death of the novel and interested in the future. So if you want to push someone (laughs) over the edge. (laughs) Just give up. (laughs) Um, And is there anything you would recommend instead (laughs) that they could probably buy from here? Yeah, with uh, John Dos Passos' USA Trilogy. Because that also has autobiographical elements in it which are distinctly autobiographical and which do something very fun within a fictional work. No, no blurring of the lines there. 
<laughs> Those lines are firmly drawn, but drawn well in a detailed fine pencil. And Gio? Yes. Um, as for uh, women who write autobiographic works, I think Chris Krause has written I Love Dick, which is amazing. And she said in an interview that everything happened in real life that is in that novel. And that novel is amazing. And I think everyone should read it. Cool. Um, I would like to say right now that if you're looking for a book which is um, about like kind of long, complex uh, family histories of told by women, I would recommend uh, Bryce Easton Nelson of the Dogs by Lena Wolf, um, which is fun. It's like a Pedro Maldivar movie, but um, I think that's what one of the reviews said. But a I book, thought you didn't really like it. I. It stayed with me though. Okay. Like it, like. It's well, not, so it's, will this book. I read it twice. No, but it's not it's, going away anytime soon. <laughs> no, but like it's it's got it it it's it's got a lot of it's just a lot of work. It doesn't it's not quite there yet. Um, but I think it's a promising future from that writer. Okay, I think it has something to do. If you want to look at a um, piece of uh, auto fiction memoir about family trauma, Dave Eggers, Heartbreaking Work, Second Genius. Right. We just sounded like real experts when you said, <laughs> I think it's a promising future for that writer. <laughs> yeah, and also it's like she's 20 years older than me, so that's crazy. <laughs> okay, well. So not as much of the future. <laughs> All right, well, um, thank <laughs> I'm going to read this copy now. I'm trying to be serious. Um, well, uh, thanks for listening, and next month we'll be back um, with the self-proclaimed bad novel, in flex fingers to signify air quotes, with... Jarrett Corbeck's raucous anarchistic satire of our tech-dominated 21st century world, I Hate the Internet. So, until then, I guess it's goodbye from me and the rest of the panel. And next time it's going to be so much fun because the book is really great. Bye. 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 Bye.